Good morning. morning. Christ is risen. He is risen. Amen. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. I'll begin reading at verse 29. Last week we saw that the brothers implemented their plan to murder Joseph, but were diverted into selling him into slavery. Today we're looking at the aftermath of that action. But before we begin, let's once again ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of looking at your word. Once again, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that you may reveal Jesus to us and that uh, you may minister to us even as we give close attention to what you have for us in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Joseph is now gone, and like before, for some reason, Reuben is missing, and the siblings prepare the great cover-up. It's another chapter in which the theme of conflict in Genesis is about to be completed. A reminder that conflict began in Genesis 3.15 when the Lord declared war and set enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that war breaks out immediately in chapter 4 when Cain murders Abel. Cain, the serpent of the seed, Abel, the serpent, excuse me, the seed of the woman. And many of uh, Genesis' motifs originate in this particular episode. Sibling rivalry, jealousy, favoring of the younger son, Ishmael mocks the younger and favored son Isaac. Jacob and Esau fight even in the womb. Jacob deceives Esau, who in turn plots his brother's murder. Even when Jacob returns to Canaan, the brothers are truly not reconciled because Jacob settles in the land of Canaan and Esau decides I don't think I want to stick around here. And he moves out of that land elsewhere. And later on, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, will come to blows with the children of Israel over and over. Leah and Rachel are rivals. And envy spurs on the Babel Bible, excuse me, baby bearing contest between them. And while only the conflict between Cain and Abel ends up in actual murder, the threat of violence overhangs all of these different conflicts. And so the conflict between Joseph and his brothers is the climactic conflict in Genesis. And many commentators note the brothers' intense hatred of their brother Joseph evokes and mirrors Cain's murder. In both cases, the unrighteous despised the righteous because of the favor of God. Cain's anger intensifies to the point of plotting murder, so the hatred of Joseph's brothers mounts until they also come up with a murder conspiracy. Cain actually murders Abel, and Joseph's brothers stop short of murder, but they send him into slavery, which is a virtual murder. And blood is prominent in both accounts. Moses portrays the shedding of blood as 
a violation of God's law. And both stories use blood as the evidence that death has occurred. And now the brothers conspire to cover up their deeds, adding guilt upon guilt. And it begins with the return of Reuben. So verse 29. And Reuben returned unto the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? So for some reason, as we noted, Reuben is missing. Perhaps like before, we suggested he's taking care of the sheep or the goats. More likely in this case, he had convinced the brothers not to murder Joseph with the intent that he would come back. So this is part of his plan, his plot to return. And he probably doesn't show up in the middle of the day and say, hey guys, how's it going? But in order to rescue Joseph, most likely, it's very likely, he returns in the middle of the night and we can just imagine him slowly making his way to the pit. Perhaps getting down on all fours and crawling up to the edge and crying out, Joseph, Joseph, are you there? And he doesn't hear a reply, and his heart begins to sink. Cries out again, and he doesn't hear a reply, so he figures, well, I'll just wait till morning, and I'll see what's going on. And the morning sun begins to break, and there's just enough light for him to peer over the edge of the pit, and it's empty. And he begins to realize that his plot to rescue Joseph has failed. And in great distress, he tears his garment, which is a common sign of mourning in the Bible. And his cry foreshadows the cry and sorrow that his father will display upon the news of Joseph. So he makes his way to the camp and he confronts the brothers and he says, the child is not. And probably doesn't use the phrase here, child, because Joseph is... Young, because we've already seen that Joseph as a young adult has displayed great responsibilities, a strong young man, but rather that he's vulnerable and exposed to danger. And he cries out, the child is not. Maybe Reuben just simply means, where is he? He's disappeared. But more likely it dawns on him that brothers haven't kept their promise. They have not just simply put him in the pit, but he is gone. And it's very likely that, knowing the hardness and the sinfulness of their hearts, they have actually murdered Joseph and buried him somewhere in the wilderness. For it's a phrase here that he uses that implies death. It's used later on in a prophecy of our Lord and the events surrounding his birth. In Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus saith the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And then he cries out, whither shall I go? Or literally, where shall I come in? And it's the prospect of facing his father Jacob that alarms Reuben. Last week we suggested that perhaps Reuben's attempt to rescue Joseph and convincing the brothers not to commit bloodshed so that 
can put him in the pit instead and he'll return later to rescue him springs from uh, true compassion. We said, maybe. Well, that's a charitable view because this passage puts things in a different light. For he says, I, whither shall I go? It's very self-centered. He's concerned about himself, not necessarily the welfare of Joseph. And he sounds confused, perplexed, as if he doesn't quite know what to do next. On the one hand, he could mean, where shall I go to find Joseph? But more likely, he's saying, what in the world am I going to say to my father Jacob when I face him and report what has happened? And he would have to face him as the eldest son who should have protected and taken care of Joseph. And in the eyes of his father, his reputation would have suffered another blow. One of you came up to me last week after Sunday school and mentioned a possibility that I think is very viable, and that's the real reason why Reuben sought to deliver Joseph and bring him to his father is because he wanted to get back into his graces after he had offended greatly his father by committing adultery with Jacob's wife. So considering Reuben's adultery and the fact that later on in Genesis 49, Jacob cuts Reuben off from the firstborn, the firstborn's blessing, Plus, what we'll see in just a moment, that he goes along with the brother's scheme to cover up this sin, shows that he does indeed have a very hard heart and makes this view very plausible. So after his outburst, he learns the truth. Joseph has been sold. The traitors are long gone and Joseph is beyond his reach. So he's in a quandary. Do I tell him? My dad, what's happened? Or do I keep it quiet? And he makes the wrong choice. He sins. Reuben joins in on the cover-up. Verse 31. And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, And this have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. The brothers could have returned home saying, you know, Joseph never made it to our camp. And Jacob would come to his own conclusion. Maybe on his way down, he'd been kidnapped. Maybe he was robbed and beaten. Maybe he's just lost, but he's running out of food and water. But such an approach would have meant a likely investigation. We're going to have to form a search party and try and find Joseph. The brothers wouldn't want that. They wouldn't want him, anybody snooping around in case they came across a witness or evidence of what had happened. So instead, their guilty conscience pushes them forward into deceit and lies. Sin warps their thinking, and as so often happens, not just here, but with us, 
with our children. One sin leads to another sin. So cover up sin number one, fabricating the evidence. The first act of cover up is fake blood. They go out and they grab a a goat from their own flock and slit its throat and dip the coat into the blood. Of course, if they tried to do that today, it wouldn't fly. We've got lab tests and DNA and all that sorts of things, but they did not. No CSI are available. Somebody looking at goat's blood is not going to be able to tell the difference between that and human blood. There's, of course, irony here, though, because in choosing their brother's clothing and a kid goat to deceive Jacob, for it was his brother's clothes and a kid goat that Jacob used to deceive his own father, Isaac, in trying to get the birthright. Cover up sin number two, transporting false evidence. So there's two interpretations to the statement that they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father. First, if they sent the coat, perhaps they had sent it on ahead of them as they returned to the camp where their father was perhaps meeting some messengers along the way and recruiting them to this task. And maybe they did that because they knew Jacob would be very distressed, maybe even have a heart attack, at the sight of the coat with blood on it, and they wouldn't want to be there. Or another interpretation is that once they arrived, they perhaps took it from whoever had gone before and then presented it to their father. Well, neither interpretation puts their feelings for their father in a very good light. Cover up sin number three, lying. They say, this we found just on our way back on the ground. And do you know this coat? It's a very clever, convenient lie because it would lead uh, Jacob to think that Joseph had been killed by a wild beast. And they don't actually have to come out and say anything about the details And there must have been some perverse satisfaction among the brothers to take the symbol of favoritism and to mar it in this way. They've gotten rid of Joseph, and now they're getting rid of a coat of many colors. And we don't hear about that coat once again. No doubt it is tossed aside. And of course they know that Jacob would recognize the coat. They pushed their father, examine this. Tell us your conclusions. What do you think? Verse 33. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. So Jacob ends up saying what they were going to say from the very beginning of their plot. Remember in verse 20, they had said among themselves, let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him. But Jacob must have had some inkling that there was something wrong 
as he examined the coat. Family would have seen the brothers returning on the horizon, the dust kicked up from the goats and the sheep. They would have been straining to see and trying to recognize and count who was there and not recognizing anybody who looked like Joseph or his gait and most significantly, they don't see anybody wearing the coat of many colors. And we can envision Jacob starting to get nervous and distraught and upset. And then the brothers arrive and Joseph is not with them and in answer to the obvious unspoken question, where is Joseph? They unpack the coat and bring it forward and his heart must have sunk. His hands trembled as he took hold of the coat that unbeknownst to him had been a symbol of his favoritism and had played such a prominent role in this wicked story. And Jacob's three short comments, it is my coat, my son's coat, An evil beast hath devoured him. He has been rent in pieces, conveys the strength of his emotions, climaxing in the cry of his favorite son's name, Joseph. Joseph. But rather than questioning his sons more carefully, he is overcome with grief, and he reacts emotionally to the situation. He jumps to conclusions. Since there is blood and there is no body, Joseph must have been slain by an animal, torn in bits, and devoured. And reading this, I can't help but think in my own life, how many times have I reacted without hearing the whole story, allowing my emotions to get ahead, and reacting without crying out to the Lord and asking for his help? Verse 34, and Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob had lost Rachel, the wife of his eyes, his favorite wife. And now he had lost Joseph, his favorite son. The one in whom he intended to give the birthright, the one whom he intended should be the leader of the family. And his grief is intense. He tears his clothes. He puts sackcloth on. Sackcloth would have been a a garment probably made of wool worn right next to the skin. And if you've ever worn wool right next to your skin, rough wool, it's very irritating. It's not pleasant. And it would have been a token to him of his great trouble and affliction. And notice that this is the first time that we read in the Bible about someone wearing a sackcloth. And it says he mourned. And mourning just doesn't mean simply weeping, but it is really kind of a technical term that encompasses all the different aspects that we see when we read about mourning in the Bible. There would have been loud lamentation, which we already 
get the impression of here. Great cries at the top of his lungs. And then the wearing of mourning clothes and also not wearing jewelry or any kind of cosmetics. We're not going to a party. We're going to a funeral. And Jacob was overwhelmed with grief, not only because he thought Joseph had died, but as we pointed out last week, he blames himself. He's the one who had sent Joseph on this journey. Matthew Henry writes rather dramatically, Sleeping or waking, he imagines he sees the wild beast setting upon Joseph, thinks he hears his piteous shrieks when the lion roared against him, makes himself tremble and grow chill many a time, when he fancies how the beast sucked his blood, tore him limb from limb, and left no remains of him but the coat of many colors to carry the tidings. And no doubt it added no little to the grief that he had exposed him by sending him and sending him all alone on this dangerous journey which proved so fatal to him. Couldn't have described it more dramatically myself. Verse 35, And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him, that is Joseph, into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. After Jacob himself dies, the end of Genesis, and his bodies return to the land of Canaan, Joseph publicly mourns for him for seven days. But Jacob here refuses to be comforted and he mourns for many days, but he, he, he's so overcome with grief that he declares that there's no timetable to my grief. I will go to the grave mourning. So the brothers have dealt a blow to their father. They have hurt and cut him deeply. Yes, they took out their revenge against the dreamer, proving their cruelty. But now they punish their father, perhaps on purpose, for his favoritism to Joseph. And perhaps we can paraphrase the answer to Heidelberg question number five this way. I am prone by nature to hate God and my brothers and my sisters, my wife, my husband, my children. And yet they try to comfort him. It's really, really difficult to fathom and understand the hardness of heart here. The incredible hypocrisy. How in the world did they keep their body language and their facial expressions from betraying what they've done? How did they keep their guilt from showing or even talking about what they had done to their wives? And then there says the daughters came to comfort Jacob as well as his sons. 
And we only know of one daughter that's Dinah, so perhaps this means his daughter-in-laws as well. But Jacob refuses comfort. The brothers were hardened to commit murder. Now Jacob is hardened himself in sorrow. He is stubborn in his grief that he says he will go down to the grave mourning. Literally, Hades or Sheol, which is translated here as the grave, but really referring to the place of departed spirits. Even as David had said in 2 Samuel after his child was born from his affair with Bathsheba. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. It's not that Jacob wished for his own death, but he would go mourning all his days until his death. It was a deep, abiding sorrow that no one could heal. And note that all of Jacob's tears and cries had no effect on the brothers. It didn't move them to repentance. For only God by his Holy Spirit could grant them repentance. Just like we with all our tears and cries and admonishments and instructions cannot cause anyone to repent, including our children. For they could have quickly, indeed immediately, put an end to their father's grief. They could have seen him pouring tears down his face, sobbing uncontrollably, and they said, sorry, Dad, sorry, stop right there. Here's the truth. Please forgive us. We've done wrong. We're going to go search for him. We know where he's going. We know where he's heading. We're going to follow the traitors and bring Joseph back. But they didn't do that. Further evidence of their extreme cruelty and hardness of heart. But when Jacob refuses comfort, he's refusing the comfort of the saints. No doubt part of the problem was his ungodly sin of favoritism. He had doted unfavorably, he had doted unfairly upon Joseph, and now that he was gone, who would take his place? He only had one favorite, and he was inconsolable. And in a sense, he was reaping the sins of and the consequences of his sins of favoritism. Now, we can understand why he wouldn't receive comfort from his sons. Maybe he's suspecting a little bit something here, that things don't add up just quite right. But what about the comfort of his daughter? or his daughter-in-laws, or his wives, or any friends who may come. Romans 12, verse 15 tells us to rejoice with them that do rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Why are we told to weep? Well, to share with the burden of others, to help them, to encourage them, to comfort them. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4 tells us, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. 
So the implication is that if there's someone who's weeping, who is in trouble, we're to help them and comfort them and weep with them. But it also implies that those who are weeping, who are in trouble, who are in sorrow, are to receive that comfort and encouragement. And if we don't, then we are hardening our heart and we are sinning. But Jacob also refuses comfort from God. As you know, one of the primary themes of the story of Joseph is the providence of God. But here we see that Jacob is someone who refuses to accept what God has ordained. He is the exact opposite of what we see in Job, who suffered a whole lot more than Jacob. And yet he could declare, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? But he also refuses the comfort of the resurrection. He knows God. The Lord has appeared to him. He is the God of the living. He was also taught the faith. He knows the story of creation that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. We have eternal souls because of the living breath of God implying resurrection. Death doesn't change the fact that we have a living soul. And he also knows the story from his own father and grandfather of God's power to raise the dead. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and that he had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Of course, pointing to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the life and resurrection. So Jacob is an example of how not to grieve. We are not to mourn like Jacob. We are not to mourn like unbelievers. We are to accept the comfort of the saints. We are to bow and kiss the son and accept his providence. And we are to also take comfort and glory in the resurrection that Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead. So Jacob sorrows as one with no hope. The irony, of course, is that while he weeps and sorrows, Joseph lives. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of the dead. We thank you for the great hope that we have, and this life indeed is a veil of tears, and we are surrounded by sorrow. It afflicts us, and yet we ask that you would lift our heads and our eyes to our Savior, knowing that he holds us in his hands. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.